I think that if the advertisers don't do it, it's because they have lost faith in the advertising industry's ability to deliver. Hi, I'm Darren Woolley, founder and CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultancy. And welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. For those regular listeners to the Managing Marketing podcast, you'll know I have a particular fascination with the concept of purpose in business, brand purpose, marketing purpose, business purpose, commercial purpose. Many point to Simon Sinek's book, Find Your Why, from 2017, but I go back to last century in 1994, a book by Jim Collins and Jerry Porras, Built to Last, where they identified enduring businesses have a consistent purpose at their core. Today, my guest has a similar fascination, particularly in how purpose has derailed the advertising industry and undermined the perception of value it can create. His 2020 book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell, clearly describes how Adland stopped selling and started saving the world. He was regarded by Campaign Magazine as the greatest direct marketing creative of his generation, having won more Khan Lion Awards than any other creative director. Please welcome award-winning copywriter, creative director, doctor of philosophy and best-selling author, Steve Harrison. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Darren. Good morning to you at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> well, look, um, first of all, uh, the fact that you're a doctor of philosophy and yet you don't use the honorarium, you you are not going by the name of Dr. Steve Harrison. No, I, I always think that's rather pretentious. Uh, people who do that, look, if, if you're on a plane and somebody says, is there a doctor available, you know, kind of, I really couldn't do much good for by reciting what I can remember from my doctoral thesis from 1985, could I, you know, kind of, I'm afraid I can't loosen people's buttons without getting arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not, there is always that confusion, isn't there, about uh, what doctor means, you know? Yeah, you know, it's, um, one of the most most frightening statistics is that that of the, at the 1C, conference in 1941 which which established the final solution of the 14 people around the table eight of them have phds so it's not something that you necessarily want to use as a as a as a you know kind of an of a, of a uh, as a signifier of any great um, knowledge or goodness to be quite honest well, I had the opportunity when I was working in medical research, my boss kept encouraging me to go and do a PhD. And I then, it, it triggered me to go into advertising as a copywriter. And she asked why. And I said, well, if I did the PhD, it'd be six to seven years of my life to become very deep in a very narrow subject. Whereas I can go into advertising and get paid for being very shallow in a very broad subject. And within seven years, have your own agency and sell it, you know. (laughs) But look, um, the reason for uh, having this chat is that uh, I picked up a copy of your book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell, which you actually contacted me uh, while you were writing it because I'd written an article about had advertising lost its uh, focus on purpose, which is to actually sell things. 
And um, that's when the book came out. I wanted a copy. I've actually, this is my second copy because you've had three editions in a very short period of time, haven't you? Yes. I, I brought the first one out. I wrote the first one and, and sent it to the publishers in March 2020 and then went to Australia uh, for three weeks um, in anticipation of a book hitting the shelves or hitting Amazon uh, on the, in sometime around the 1st of April. Um, and of course, in the meantime, COVID-19 happened and I figured that the world had something perhaps more pressing to worry about than whether advertising had stopped selling and started saving the world. So we had a very soft launch. I wrote another, what, four chapters, I think, another few chapters then on how the ad world responded to COVID. And then 12 months later, I wrote a, a proper appraisal of how the advertising world had responded to the COVID crisis. And uh, spoiler alert, it hadn't handled it very well, in my opinion. Well, there was uh, certainly a lot at the time in early 2020, the way brands were, you know, almost consistently jumping on board with trying to show brand empathy Mm. with virtually using almost stereotypical imagery and words to say, you know, we're with you. We're all in this together. Yeah. You know, it was quite interesting how it all became a bit of uh, wallpaper. Well, I must have done the ukulele manufacturing industry, the world of good, because each one of those 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 empathetic ads had a backing track of someone strumming a ukulele, I, I seem to remember. <laughs> Absolutely. What was it that was the genesis of writing this book? What were the things that you were noticing in the industry that really got you thinking and identifying the fact that you know, we, we had as an industry given up on selling and started focusing on this, as you put it, saving the world. Um, initially, it was Patrick Collister, who runs the Capels Awards, which is one of the one of the few international awards that builds effectiveness into the judging process. And Patrick wanted me to give the inaugural speech at the, at the, the first of the, the Capels under, the, under his auspices, and he gave me the subject, why have, we, why have we become ashamed of selling? And he gave me the statistic that of all of the Cannes Lions winners in 2018, I think it was, only six of the Grand Prix winners had selling as an objective. Um, so I went in search of why this would be. And I was, uh, my attention was taken by what was happening in the United States and articles that were appearing in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and Forbes, to the to the kind of the, the gist of being, can a left-leaning uh, industry empathise with 65 million people, uh, 65 basket of deplorables, i.e., those who voted for Donald Trump, and the and that was that, that was a very serious debate was being had. Could could the East and West Coast uh, advertising agencies and those in Boulder, Colorado, I hasten to add, bring themselves to sell things to people they despised? Um, and so it was then that I'd start, uh, it occurred to me that the political aspect of the industry's makeup and the fact that it's at odds with what are generally conservative mainstream groupings that had not been addressed. 
and that's where I started looking, really. Um, it's interesting because, you know, there is a heavy focus in the book around this idea of the, you know, in, in America they call it the loony left, you know, or the woke, the woke Democrats. Uh, in the in the UK, you talk about it being the sort of anti-right, or, or how would you define it there? I'd say, I mean, it's people who, who are culturally left-leaning. Um, I'm not talking about good old-fashioned... We, we had politicians like Tony Benn and, um, and Michael Foote in the 1970s who talked about wealth redistribution, uh, who talked about state ownership of the means of production. Those old-fashioned kind of class war um, left-leaning um, uh, principles. These are culturally left-leaning. Um, they are middle-class, affluent, um, privileged people who want to fight over who, who have identified whose whose noir are racism, homophobia, sexism, and of course the, the the climate crisis. And they ascribe all and they put all of those those the great sins of society at the door of capitalism. Now, if you are of that mind, if you are of that leaning, it's very difficult for you, I would have imagined, to go into work and oil the wheels of capitalism's engines of growth and consumption. And I think that it, I think people, when they attend their dinner parties in West Sydney, in uh, whatever the, the, the shishi neighbourhoods of Melbourne and Sydney might be, or the equivalents of Islington and Chiswick, uh, when they rock up with their dinner party guests to hide their embarrassment that they work in in something as vulgarly capitalistic as advertising, they say, oh, don't worry, we're, we're not selling things anymore. Our 1980s, we're saving the world, darling. Um, and that is what, and that is, I think that's, that, 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 that is my point about where uh, ad folk are nowadays. Well, I'm not sure, Steve, that that's new because, you know, back in the 1980s when I moved from uh, medical research into advertising, I had someone in advertising tell me I should tell people I play piano in a whorehouse because uh, that was more acceptable than saying that you worked in advertising. Advertising's always had a sort of, you know, uh, questionable uh, perception because, you know, it's constantly down there in the least... Uh, trustworthy professions, isn't it? Uh, but it used to be something that a lot of young working class kids aspired to be. You know, kind of um, the the it gave it was one of those not professions but occupations that had no barrier to entry uh, or less barrier to entry than than others. As a um, and it was glamorous. I mean, I grew up in the world where the Suches were actually sitting in number 10 Downing Street, advising the Prime Minister on policy and strategy. I grew up where, this, where, this, where, this, where the statues were going to buy what became HSBC Bank in the United Kingdom. They were going to buy the Midland Bank, for goodness sake. Um, I grew up in a, at a time when the commercials were, were, were more entertaining and, and more liked than the programmes. You know, kind of, so yeah. yes, advertising is always had a rather loose image, um, but I don't think it was, it, it was, I don't think it was, it, not despised, but ignored as it is nowadays. It's, the great paradox, Darren, is that as advertising has moved to the margins 
of, of, of culture and consciousness. It has ascribed to itself the great role of telling us all how to live our lives. You know, kind of, mm-hmm. as, it, as it's been ignored and, and nobody takes any notice of it anymore, it feels that it, <laughs> it's in a position to tell us all how we should be living our lives and, and setting our moral compass for us. Trinity P3. Steve, I just want to uh, pick you up on a point about you know, advertising being a quite a glamorous industry that is relatively easy for all sorts of you know different. I, I, I make okay, because I was going to say, you know, when I look around, agencies seem to be filled with private school boys and girls, uh, upper middle class, uh, dressing like they're working class in the creative departments. Uh, and you know, pretending to to coming from Struggle Street, yet very strongly uh, embedded in that privileged middle class. I world. don't know what the situation is like in in, the, in in Oz, but in the UK, eighty four percent of the agency workforce is aged eighteen to forty. Seventy percent grew up in a household where the chief income earner was social grade A B. That's seventy percent, as opposed to a national average of twenty nine percent. Uh, 63% of parents with a professional background, which meant there were lawyers, accountants, school teachers, whatever, whereas the national average is 37%, so that's 63 through 37%. Only 17% come from what is a working-class background as opposed to 40% in the general population. 88% have got a degree or an MA. Uh, and I heard a horrible anecdote recently that to get an interview at an advertising agency, you had to have become, come from not just a university, but a Russell Group University, which is one of the top 20 universities in the country. That's before anyone would see you, okay? And as far as our black, Asian and mixed ethnicity uh, colleagues, um, 70% of them are public school educated. So as opposed to a national average of 7%. So we are a privileged elite. We, we, we differ from the mainstream in pretty much all of our attitudes, our aspirations and our experience of life. It's interesting that uh, diversity and inclusion has become such a, uh, a big issue for the industry, as it has for society. You know, during, uh, during the pandemic and, and just prior you know, we had uh, the the death and, or murder of George Floyd in the US, the rise again of the Black Lives Matter. You know, I've had clients, major clients in the US approach me asking me if we have benchmarks for diversity and inclusion within agencies. You know, mm. that it's become procurement have spotted this as becoming such an important thing to do. And my perspective is that, Diversity and inclusion is essential for creative industries because, you know, creativity comes from a diversity of ideas all, you know, bumping together to create new ideas and new thoughts. What's your, what's your opinion? I, I'm coming from a, I suppose, a working class background myself. I would say that I would agree entirely, but I think that diversity and inclusion needs to be colorblind. And I, I think there's quite a lot of, um, of um, showboating going on. But we need, if, if you don't understand, we need lots of, new, of people of colour in, in our creative departments and in, in our planning departments 
and not a lot of effort made to include the most underprivileged and deprived sector of uh, UK society. This is, that's the white working classes. Um, there isn't a, I, don't, I don't see many programmes designed to get kids in from Hartlepool and Halifax um, and from, you know, kind of my home, my home area. Um, unfortunately, in my own area, this is, I'm getting very parochial on you here, but there is a school at, 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 um, at, in Preston for advertising, and it's been closed. Its funding has been cut off. Um, so the one major college in my hometown, in northwest of England, the, the advertising college's funding has been cut. Uh, and I don't think they saw many people from London coming recruiting in the first place, you know, kind of. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, I think DNI should be colorblind, and I don't think it is. Well, I, I think it should be diverse in its view. I, the, the thing that annoys me is that most people, when they start talking to me about diversity and inclusion, are talking about gender yeah. and race yeah. or culture, yeah. right? And yet, you know, there's also an incredible amount of ageism because diversity is also age. Yes. It's also educational status. It's, it's, you know, whether you grew up in a rural setting, an urban setting or a, a, metro, a, a, a city setting, yeah. you know, there's, there's lots of different measures, but it seems that we're stuck on two, and that is uh, a, a race and, uh, and gender. Yes, yeah. And I think all of them are important, but we need to look at how, how, do, we, um, how do we actually make the advertising agencies, first of all, full of talented people that bring very various lived experiences to the forefront. Trinity P3. We have a, uh, a copy school or, uh, in Western Sydney. One of the biggest issues they have is trying to attract uh, people to that school because, you know, they don't see advertising as a career path. Right, right. Why? Because from experience, from... Just not for them. Uh, they don't see it as uh, particularly you know, um, uh, rewarding or an, as an opportunity anymore? I think that um, my, maybe because the advertising that's being, that they see on the screens, doesn't, they're not, they don't appear in it. You know, they're not featured in it. I mean, you, you would, again, I'm sorry to bang this drum, but you'd struggle to find a commercial on TV or the cinema which features a positive image of a white working class person. You got lots of white working class people featured in gambling ads, you know, because they're the fucking idiots who they're targeting. You know, kind of it, it's like it, it, you know, kind of it, it's not particularly, it's not, it's not a genre you really want to dominate. You know, kind of the, the gambling genre, but that's about the only time you'll see them. Um, also, I've, I've heard it from my friend James, who runs Commercial Break, uh, which is, is he has been been wonderful efforts to try and get working class people into the creative industries. And he says that the agencies will take a working class team on, and they're a novelty for two weeks, you know. And then Boudica and and, and Oscar will take them out to the 
to the to to the kind of restaurants these kids have never been to before for dinner on a Friday, or take them to a bar, you know, in the evening. But when the novelty wears off, the two working class kids just kind of drift off, you know, because yeah. because as you say, it's not for them. They see no future in it because there's nobody like them in those agencies, Darren. Now you touch on in the book about the the fact that, you know, there's not this focus on actually creating value. You know, how does the advertising create value? And and particularly award shows, you know, uh, even the Effie Awards, which should be about return on investment or, or return on marketing investment, seem to be more about, you know, the additional media value that's delivered by doing what I call tricks, stunts and novelties than they are actually about driving sales. Well, I think that's the the, the, the CMO's um, focus, the, the CMO's delusion that clicks, likes and shares are some, are some indicator of success. Um, and I think that while in the good times, the CMOs were allowed by the C C suite peers to um, to get away with such nonsense, but I do sense that things are changing. Um, I think that uh, Kelsey Chickering um, in Ad News on the twenty second of December, I think you contributed to that article. She she of Forest uh, said the marketing teams are facing budget scrutiny from internal stakeholders. And they need to prove that every single dollar put into the market will have a strong return. I don't think that was the case 18 months ago or even 12 months ago. But I think that the the cost of living crisis, rampant inflation, supply chain problems, uh, or you name it, have suddenly focused everybody upon something that you've always been interested in. And that is commercial purpose as opposed to social purpose. Absolutely. And, and look, <clears throat> I think the two can sit hand in hand, but uh, it, going back to uh, the reference I made in Built to Last, um, uh, Jim Collins and, uh, and Jerry Porras said that uh, profit is to business what oxygen is to human beings in that you don't breathe just purely as, as you have to breathe because otherwise you can't live. Yes. And profit's the same for business. You know, that's why, you know, businesses must make a profit because that's the only way that they can be sustained. And then they can look to making social change. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, and, when, and in good times, when you're awash with money, you can possibly do that. Um, but we are entering times when that's not possible. There's a chap called Les Binnett who is the IPA's guru of effectiveness, along with Peter Field. And Les Bennett wrote this last last month. He said, if you decide to pursue a purpose-driven marketing agenda, you have to accept you'll probably make less money. Purpose-driven marketing is about 30% less effective than normal marketing in business terms. It's harder. You have to do everything that normal marketing does, and you need to do brand purpose as well. So effectively, you are doing marketing with one hand tied behind your back. That might be something you can afford in the good times, but you have to ask yourself whether or not you can afford it now, especially since consumer priorities are changing. Okay? It's doing marketing with one hand tied behind your back. 
You know, kind of. I honestly, I, I, I think that if the if a company's strategy is designed is aimed primarily at making a profit, and that profit can then be redistrib- redistributed. If the aim is to redistribute that profit to stake to grow the business and then redistribute it to stakeholders, be they shareholders or employees, okay. That is your company. That is, I would have thought that is the priority of pretty much most businesses. Okay, but if your marketing strategy is social purpose, to use that money in order to make the world a better place, then you've got a conflict, and a conflict which I'm afraid can only be resolved by ignoring it, and you can only ignore it when you're making enough money to ignore it. But when you ain't making that much dough, that conflict comes to the fore. And I think Les Bennett has pointed that up there. Hmm. I do think there's a big difference between purpose marketing and business purpose. You know, that that one of the issues here is that we've seen some very successful businesses being based on having a core purpose to the business. Yes. It's when the marketing tries to create the emperor's new clothes around a traditional business, isn't it? Yeah, I would hasten to add. I would, you know, I would say that um, Patagonia <clears throat> is, it's, it set out its core purpose was to change the world, to, re- to, use, it, it's, to, to use the platforms it created, the products it created, in order to make, have a beneficial impact upon the world. I, and I'm saying, but I think that's, you know, that's the exception that proves the rule. Okay. Yeah. There is nothing wrong with a core purpose, um, which I'll, I'll give you an example of a, of, a, of a brand with a core purpose. I would say Volvo has a purpose, and that is to produce cars that are safe to drive. To yeah. make, and, it is, and it has made the world decidedly better because of that purpose. And it's mm-hmm. sold shed loads of garage fulls of cars in so doing. And it continues to do this. The, the EVA initiative, the EVA initiative, it's a fabulous example of a core commercial purpose that does good. That they've, mm. they've, gone, they've done all the, the tests, the crash test dummies, and found out that all the crash test dummies are, are shaped like men, right? So all of safety design is geared towards protecting man-like human beings, okay? And women, therefore, disproportionately die in car crashes because the safety designs are not built around them and they have god bless them shared all the research with the automobile with the rest of the automobile industry god bless them but this is a this is a core purpose that is a commercial purpose but also does remark has done remarkably good over Mm. over decades decades And, Steve, we've seen some new companies, and I know you know about this because you referred to it in the latest edition of your book, and that is Who Gives a Crap, which is a company that started uh, producing toilet paper with smaller smaller, uh, environmental impacts, and they're doing it through, you know, basically social media and and subscription-based. So they've actually changed the business model. But at the very core of it, their purpose is to provide, you know, hygienic uh, toiletry around the world yes, with yes. minimal environmental impact. Yes, and, and, uh, and I think if you can afford 
who gives the crop toilet paper, and I, I think it's admirable that you go out and buy it. Um, but I don't think that, I, I, I imagine that the mainstream probably can't afford, um, and they could actually give a crap. Um, well, what I like about it is the business model, is a subscription model. See, toilet paper you know, is always struggled from the point of view of it's a impulse purchase, you know, or a demand purchase. Everyone's got to have a piece of paper to wipe their bum yeah. with. But if you've signed up to a subscription, and and yes, it does appeal to people that are willing to pay a premium. Yeah. Um, it it locks them in to never having to make that purchase decision again, except to maybe stop subscribing. So, and that's why I like the idea of a business model where the purpose is actually built into the business model, not just into the advertising. Because you also point out a couple of examples in the book of where the expenditure on virtue signalling of being a good brand is actually more expensive than the actual benefit delivered. And I think Burger King was my favourite example of where for a, a, around $50,000 worth of benefit, they spent over $200,000 promoting it. Yeah, it, it was International Women's Day and they produced a press ad in the New York Times which said women belong in the kitchen, which itself called, caused a brouhaha amongst a humorless uh, people who found that offensive. Um, but, of course, what they were, they were giving away two scholarships to a renowned culinary uh, course, and those scholarships were $25,000 each. But the ad in the New York Times, which told everybody about this good act, cost $214,000 to run in, the, uh, in media spend. So, yes, it was a, it was a bit of... Um, it was a, a, a bit of purchase on behalf of, of Burger King. Um, unfortunately, not, a, not an aberration. Trinity P3. There's a, uh, there's a book uh, called The, the uh, Status Game, which actually identifies three different types of status. There's the dominance hierarchy, which is the traditional you know, biological occurs in the animal and, and plant kingdom as well as human beings. Then there's the virtue status, which has gone into overdrive in the world of social media. That's the desire to be seen to be good. And then there's the actually being good is the third one and allowing your good works to act, give you status. Quite interesting that... Uh, been identified because most people think of status purely in the first basis of the dominance hierarchy. Yes, yeah, I would, I would see um, who gives a crap as the as as a as, as far as Maslow's needs are concerned. That 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 is probably ticking box of self actualization. Uh, kind of, but, but using this toilet paper and having this toilet paper. The beautifully branded, but clearly branded in your toilet, um, would would be more about self actualization than the functional need of wiping your ass. And so what? Give, what? So so what? Who gives a crap? Is fulfilling something much more different uh, than than its than its practical uh, benefit, 
but it is fulfilling a certain need in the, uh, for the people who use it or, or, or have it on display. But isn't that ultimately the role of marketing? You know, I was once uh, told that uh, sales is about volume and marketing is about margin. If you can get a consumer to pay more for the same product, then that's good marketing. Yes, I mean, uh, when you can go down to TK Maxx or the discount store and buy um, your, your, your Dolce Gabbana shoes or your Fendi handbag or whatever for knockoff prices of $200, $100, it's no, you no longer get your status in society by wearing such overt uh, symbols. You get your status in society by carrying a tote bag for, I don't know, for, for which has got the correct slogan on it, the right T-shirt, by, by being, like I say, having a couple of uh, packets of give-it crap in your, in your toilet, in, in, your, in, your, in your bathroom. You know, kind of they, the, it's the way of, of establishing your superiority. Uh, in the way that consumer goods used to, you know, kind of. Mm. But, uh, so, yeah, that it's, it's status goods aligned with status beliefs. Mm. Interesting that we're talking about toilet paper and status at the same time. But, yeah, one of the other things, Steve, that I wanted to um, cover with you is, you know, the book fairly lays at the feet of the industry bodies and the industry uh, groups for their lack of actually promoting and uh, reinforcing the value of advertising. Yeah, yeah. I think that the our institutions, and by those I would say in the UK, and you can you can fill in the, the you can put your own Australian versions in here. But I would say DNAD, I would say the Advertising Association, Wackle, the DMA, um, and then I would. Uh, not the IPA, but sometimes the IPA. Um, I would also add our trade papers in there. I would say the the campaign, the drum, creative review. I'd say that they've singularly failed over the dec- last decade and a half of making the case for the value that advertising adds to our economy. Now, you left Isbar out of that list. So I'm just wondering, do you think the advertisers also have a role here or do you think it's very much for the advertising industry itself to, to, do, to do this? I think that if the advertisers don't do it, it's because they have lost faith in the advertising industry's ability to deliver. Okay. To okay. I think that is the major problem. We failed to get this message across to our clients who have always been sceptical about advertising's efficacy. I think, and we have failed to to hammer home that point. Um, and I and the people who run our institutions don't seem to get this. The the Tim Lindsay, I'll give you an example. Tim Lindsay, who is the chairman of DNAD, went onto LinkedIn, I think it was, and said, "Where well, once the public rather liked advertising, and we liked working in the business, our consuming public now do pretty much anything to avoid it." And sadly, a lot of us are looking for a way to leave. Now, can this is the chairman of DNAD, who's supposed to be the custodian of creativity in the industry. 
and then went into into campaign and said what was once a powerful business tool that was capable of inserting itself into popular culture that people said they liked as much or more than the programs is debased and devalued. And he said, well, by saying, how, how have we let this happen? It's like, how have we let this happen? Well, by not, do, by not banging the drum for, how, for the value that advertising happened, that adds, you know, um, and, and emphasizing its fundamental importance to the industry's survival, you know, and to, to the economy's survival. We have made no effort to make the case for advertising's commercial purpose. Yeah. And and yet there's lots of uh, effort talking about creativity. You know, there's lots of banging the drum about creativity and there's creative awards to champion creativity. Uh, our own uh, ACA in Australia, which is the advertising body, equivalent of the IPA, they do a lot of work with the IPA, have a weekly thing in the Australian newspaper called the Growth Agenda, where there's lots of discussions about the role of creativity in, in driving growth. But the big weakness seems to be linking these proclamations and these uh, exclamations around creativity to actual performance. And I think this is the role that that marketers have to be on board with. I mean, marketers, you know, if they want to continue to have a advertising budget of some sort, need to also be on board in championing and proving the role that advertising and creativity plays in their in growing their businesses. But this is your you've always your whole Point was it when you set up the business was to take commercial purpose to do, achieve, help people achieve commercial purpose through creative process exactly it? and and you saw a gap then or you saw a lacking there and you noticed it it become even broader the gap between creative commercial purpose and creative process are are the are the creatives simply playing in a sandpit whilst the rest of the grown-ups get on with with, with doing business, do you think? Uh, now you're trying to turn my podcast around on me. But look, um, Steve, I, I will say that what has happened is technology and particularly AI and econometric modelling has now made it much easier for marketers and their agencies to have informed decisions around what's working and what isn't. What I am noticing, though, is the uptake is incredibly slow because people are arguing over which is the best model. And my argument is if you've got zero uh, confidence in your decisions because you have no proof except gut instinct Mm. and someone can offer you a model that gives you, let's say, 50% confidence or 60 or 80 percent confidence, then why wouldn't you embrace it? Rather than saying things like, well, until you get to a 99% confidence interval, I'm really not interested in investing. You know, like something is better than nothing. I I wrote an article, and I'm sure you saw it, where the headline was, Lord Leverhulme and John Wanamaker were optimists. (laughs) You know, it's not half half the budget that's wasted. It's actually possibly a lot more unless you start putting some type of measurement, you know. But I see continual wastage of effort 
in should it be an attribution model, should it be an econometric model, and if it's econometric, should it be a linear regression model which takes you know potentially a year or more and vast sums to get to the 90% confidence in you know this is all mute it's uh, wasted effort there are already ways of doing this and starting and shouldn't we be at least doing something rather than continuing to have these discussions but whilst these discussions are going on the advertising creative fraternity are having their award ceremonies, giving awards to work that has all the efficacy of a butterfly's belch. <laughs> Trinity P3. One of the things that got me focused on this was an article about Khan, and I think it was around 2015, where they pointed out that most of the major awards went to not-for-profit mm. advertisers. So, and, and quite a few of them, there was one year, and I can't remember the particular year, where quite a few of them ended up being pointed out to being scams in many ways because those not-for-profit advertisers really weren't aware that the work had been done. Yes. I, uh, it, was, it, it was always, when I, had my, when I had my agency, I would encourage people to bring in charity accounts uh, causes that they were interested in, causes that were close to them. And we would offer to do the work on a pro bono basis um, because it was sugar for the pill of working for IBM, Microsoft, Vodafone, you know, kind of the, the, those big, heavy Xerox accounts, you know, kind of the hard work accounts. Uh, and I think it was ever thus. Ben Kay mixing my metaphor... Uh, the copywriter Ben Kay assessed what was happening at Cannes this year, where 85% of the Grand Prix winners were cause-related or social purpose-related. And Ben said, enough is enough. There's too much icing and not enough cake. Yeah. Well, see, one of the things I've always argued, and I, I had this uh, conversation with the previous chairman of Cannes, which is uh, performance or effectiveness should be organised through a reputable large accounting firm so that marketers can actually provide the confidential details of sales results yeah. so that they can then be analysed and put on an index. Yeah. You know? Because one of the things is marketers will often not allow their agencies to have access to the data or share the data because it's commercially confidential. But if we could find a way of doing that in a way that doesn't expose that. The other thing I think is that award shows should not be by discipline, but by client vertical. You should be entering based on what the vertical is. Because in this day and age, the best film or the best online piece is almost largely irrelevant. These are craft exercises. We mm. live in a digital world where everything is largely digital. And so the best idea for a particular category of advertisers seems much more relevant to the world than just who did the nicest website or Web3 application. Yes, that's true. I, I, always, I always kind of um, query the fact that clients don't give the results to their agencies. I never had any problems getting the results out of my clients, and I think that that's a 
it's a well-worn kind of excuse for we, we don't know whether it worked you know kind of um i think that that, that in itself is a bit of a scam response to um but but so, as far as effectiveness is concerned i think that 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 there should there should be much more emphasis placed upon it um but this goes to your but 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 in but I, you, you say that we're losing touch with our commercial purpose in the industry. Have you, have you again? I'm turning this on to you, but have you found in pitching that the introduction of procurement to the process, whereas where once there were credentials, focus were, but it was based on capabilities and case studies, which are about effectiveness, which are about commercial purpose, which are about, has this done the job it was given? But introducing procurement to the process, when you're talking about modern slavery acts, net emissions, CSR, DNI programs, those kind of things, is that getting us away from that which we're supposed to be doing, i.e. selling things, building brands and selling things, Darren, do you think? No, the, the, the two operate completely separately. It's almost as if the you know, compliance with uh, the Modern Slavery Act, uh, di- uh, having diversity and inclusion as part of your strategy, this is table stakes. You know, this is the thing that procurement will focus on. This is the th- Meanwhile, the marketers will be looking at which agency do I feel most confident in? Which one do I have good chemistry? Who who has the capabilities that I need to to deliver my marketing strategy? The the two run quite separately. And one is almost like a qualification process. The other is the selection process. The other sad part is that procurement is also involved in the financial component as well. And, And the focus there is about cost not yeah. value. And so to your point, if we flip this whole thing around to what's the value created? What's the upside here? And move away from a cost model to a value creation model. Yes. Yes. Then we get quite a different conversation. And I think you know, th- there's a whole lot of cause and effect in here that I'm not sure we can answer in uh, in the time that we have, but you know, We've also seen over the last 20 years advertising agencies effectively getting paid the same amount of money to do exponentially more at work. Yes. Yeah. That that the brands that you worked on in 2020, you may have produced 100 pieces of work for advertising. Today you'll be producing 3,000 or more because of social media and digital channels. Yes. And so... There's also a whole issue around that, around, you know, first of all, are they all needed? Are they all performing and driving sales? Are they driving value? It's a huge, it's a huge topic. But I think that the the thing about your book that I enjoyed was it's incredibly thought-provoking and right. that it brings us back to, well, what is the purpose of advertising? And what is the priorities you need to bring to it? <laughs> well, look, Steve. We're, unfortunately, we've run out of time. <laughs> we've run out of time. It, it's uh, it's been a conversation that's flown by. I really appreciate you uh, 
taking the time in your evening to uh, to sit down and have this chat. I would absolutely recommend to everyone working in the industry to read Can't Sell, Won't Sell. Uh, edition three is out at the moment. Well, Steve Harrison, thank you very much for your time. I have a question for you before you go, and that is, if there was a list of three things the industry should immediately do, what would they be? Thank you.